the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Are you guys ready to finish up chapter 11 of the book of Romans? Let's do this. All right, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his blessing. Heavenly Father, now as we set about finishing up this very profound and mysterious chapter 11, God, you have been so good to us helping us through chapters 9 and 10, and now finishing up this final point here in chapter 11. Would your Holy Spirit just help us take in some of these Jewish foreign concepts and make uh, good understanding of them so that we can apply these truths to our lives and be blessed in Jesus' name, amen. amen. It's time for the grand finale Paul's point that's been in the making for what? Three chapters now here, now in chapter 11, answering the question that uh, inquiring Gentiles might want to know, especially if you're in first century Rome, filled with a bunch of Gentile Christians, spirit-filled, who are wondering why are the Jews the bad guys in the story? Is it over for Israel? And that was the question of the day. And the Holy Spirit prompted the Apostle Paul, a Jewish Christian himself, uh, to answer that question. The short answer, no, of course God's not done with his people who he foreordained to exalt when they put their unbelief aside in the last days. And so we've been in this subject for three whole uh, chapters and now coming to a close now. And once again, just saying God has not scrapped his plans. And the Old Testament's pretty clear if you go to a variety of verses, but let's choose the big one, uh, Jeremiah 31, that just says, look, God is speaking first person. Israel is my nation. They will always continue to be a nation despite their bad behavior. The stars will fall out of the heavens before anything is changed in that regard. And so the short answer, of course, uh, is he through with the Jewish people because of their temporary, the Bible calls it temporary, rejection of their own Messiah? He says, of course not. Now, the longer answer has been three chapters, right? And so a little context, and then we'll finish up his argument. Uh, the longer answer was, well, here's what, what happened. Jesus, the God-man, who was the man part of the God-man, is a Jew himself who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David along the way. 
But what went wrong was is that Israel continued to seek their own way of getting right with God. This crucified Messiah thing wasn't the right popular method of conquering Rome through the death on a cross. And so Jesus brought an unpopular message of dying to self, laying down your life, making others better than yourselves. And so that's what happened. He came to his own and his own said, no, thank you, will pass. And so secondly, he said, now this rejection of the truth was especially egregious uh, because of everybody in the world the Jew ought to have been the best prepared to receive the Jewish Messiah. 300 prophecies, down to where he'd be born, how he'd be born, how he would live, how he would die. They had it all right there at the tips of their fingers, as it were. And so to sin against the truth brought on a supernatural spirit of stupor. The Bible said it's like this veil hangs over their minds when you preach the gospel. And so he says, but in this three-chapter argument, God is still at work. Just because there's a low turnout, he says he calls it the remnant. And he says, through from ancient times, Israel has always had a small group of people who have had faith, faith in Christ as well in the New Testament time. And so he says God is using that remnant and keeping his promise to those numbers, even though they're small. And then he says, in the meantime, their rejection as a nation forced the Jewish evangelists at the time, who were the only Christians were Jews, it forced them to kick the door open and do something they thought was crazy, was offer a Jewish message to non-Jewish people. Gentiles, And so then until they were convinced, this is God's will. It wasn't just the Jews he loves and died for. It was the world. And so in Acts chapter 8, the only Christians around, which were Jews, they got booted out and chased out of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, they start doing the thing from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the world. And so when the Jewish evangelists went out into the world, they ended up going first to the Jews, like, this is our message. Our Jewish Messiah is here. Let us tell you about him. And they, well, a few people got saved, the remnant. But then, by and large, they slammed the door in those apostles' face. And the apostles' answer in Acts chapter 13 is this. Fine. You guys don't consider yourself worthy of eternal life. We will turn to the Gentiles, quoting now Isaiah, as it is written, I have made you a light for the nations, the Gentiles. That's what the word means. That, I, that you, the Jews, would bring my salvation to the ends of the world. So uh, Peter quotes that there in Acts chapter 13. I should say Paul quotes that, and says that this was always God's plan. So God then, now to bring you up to speed, now we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, now Paul has just told us God is using this massive Gentile conversion to the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish God, the Jewish plan. The whole world is flocking to him. God is using this in one way to kind of make his people 
uh, envious and jealous and that in this regard, it is one of the ways God will draw Israel back in the last days that they will have a nationwide revival and they will have to become Christians just like any other Christian. And they will lay aside their unbelief, they will have a repented heart, and they will receive the gospel, and this will usher in uh, the appearance of Christ at the second coming. And so, yeah, it's sort of to get their attention, uh, you know, and I'm, I've been saying this, four million Christian Gentiles go every year to Israel flocking to all of their cities and praising their wonderful Messiah and embracing their nation. And they're like, whoa, is there... It causes a Jew to think, is there something we're missed about our own Messiah? That the whole world, 2.8 billion people love their Messiah, love their scriptures, memorize their psalms. We're singing their songs. And they hear us singing their psalms and quoting their scriptures and loving their Messiah. And they're like, hey, you know, maybe uh, Jesus isn't that bad after all. The whole world seems to love him, except his own people. And Paul says, it may look bad now, but God's got a plan. He made a promise. And in the end, he's going to come around after he's done with the Gentiles the Gentiles are removed from harm's way, and then we enter a time called the time of Jacob slash Israel. It's another name for Jacob. Trouble called the Great Tribulation, and it's during those <laughs> pressure moments that the nation cries out in the one name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved, Yeshua, in the Hebrew, Jesus, their Messiah. And so that's the overview Here in 16, he's just going to say, maybe those Gentile Christians in Rome who are kind of pestered by the Jewish leaders who are hindering the gospel and being a thorn in the early church's side, maybe those Roman Christians are copying an attitude of arrogance. Look, God's done with you. You guys are the bad bad guys in the story. He's going to replace... You with us. That's exactly what they thought. And they had a proud and arrogant attitude, some of them. And so Romans chapter 11 addresses that and tells them, here are the facts. God's not done with these people. And here is an attitude adjustment expected, right? So he says, look, now we're diving in at verse 16. Let me say this. Uh, It may look impossible now for Israel coming to Christ, he's saying, but Paul's going to now close out the argument. We'll walk through to the end of the chapter uh, by making a case for the opposite. He's going to say here, it shouldn't surprise any of us that God is going to win over the ethnic Jews. Why should it surprise you if an ethnic Jew responds to a Jewish message, Jewish prophecies, Jewish scriptures, and at the end of the day, a Jewish Messiah. Why should it surprise you? Why do you think, oh, that's going to be hard? What's going to be hard in some people's mind is that a Gentile 
would understand with no creation story, no, no Moses story, no Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no Psalms, no King David, no biblical understanding. What's improbable to the Jewish Christian mind in the first century is that a Gentile would come to know this Jewish gospel, right? So Paul's gonna say these exact things that if you think that if, if the Gentile church loves Jesus and has received Jesus, how much more easily will his own people open their hearts to their own message and their own king? So he says, I want you to think about it. And he's gonna start with two Jewish illustrations. Don't let it throw you. You've got a tour guide, a Jewish Christian tour guide, and I will help you understand it. So he says, let's put it this way. You think it's going to be hard to bring a Jew to Christ? Come on. He says, if the part of the dough offered his first fruits, that's a Jewish thing, is holy, set apart for God, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, this is going to be talking about uh, bringing Israel to Christ. 17, now for the attitude adjustment. If some of the branches, Israel, has been broken off because of unbelief, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others into that Jewish tree, and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root. Look at that. He's saying the church is receiving life nourishment from what the olive root is Judea, is uh, Israel. Do not boast over the branches. If you do consider this, you don't support the root. The root supports you. Oh, so those Roman Gentile Christians in the first century who had a bad attitude, who said, you know, we're tired of the synagogue always protesting. We can't get anything done as a church because they're the problem. They're so hostile. They cause so many problems. And so that lent itself to, to grow a resentment toward the Jewish people and just thinking, look, we're the privileged ones now and you guys are out. We love your Messiah. You don't. He loves us better than you kind of thing. You know. <laughs> so here we go. If you're taking notes, you can say regarding Israel's future, number one, Israel, uh, a call to right thinking. Number one is a call to right thinking. Note takers, okay. So we're off and running now. He's going to explain why the Jews will be readily won to Christ just because. God said it would happen. He gives you some other illustrations to help your faith to grow in that regard. And then a rebuke to Gentile believers, Gentile Christians, to watch their attitude about the Holy Land. Uh, all right, so uh, number one here. Uh, Israel has a preeminence over the church. Not in love. God doesn't love anybody of his children better than Others, But preeminence is in this, that Israel is his firstborn. They came first before the church. It's the founding stone upon which the church was built. And it is the underpinning root that nourishes, verse 17, if we're working backwards. It's saying, listen, church Gentile Christians, let's just get our thinking straight. They came first. They support you. You don't support them. Don't have it the other way 
around. And so I've got a little chart of how many Old Testament references. I know it's hard to see. I just kind of took it on my phone and, and sent it in. But here in the, the Gospel of Matthew alone, 100 times he's quoting the Old Testament. That's three times a chapter or more. All right? So when you get down to the bottom of the list, there's 855 quotations in the New Testament, the New Covenant, this new gospel, this Christianity, turns out to be what? A running commentary of the root of what God did through Israel and the patriarchs, you see? So if we were to, as one pastor said, who's a nationally known pastor, said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. You know what? If a caboose unhitches itself from the engine, that's not a good thing. <laughs> that's really not. And true, Paul will say, and thank you, you can go back to our scriptures. Paul will say, yeah, the engine, the engineer is asleep at the wheel. He's got narcolepsy right now. It's temporary. They're going to be healed. Uh, but, and the caboose is in the back honking, wake up, wake up, because they're in the lead to the Jew first, the gospel over and over again. Then the rest of the world, just not in worth or in love, but in functionality. God couldn't just take a, a, a megaphone from heaven and just start by preaching to the whole world. He needed an end. He had to become one of us. So he created a nation through whom he could incarnate himself through one of their wombs and do his saving work. And so this is where he began, and they have a special relationship. And so, yeah, we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We unhitch ourselves from ceremonial law. Yeah. But even in ceremonial law that points to Jesus and even in national law for ancient Israel, political law, there's still something that we gain or can glean from it. Yes, we're, we unhitch ourselves. We're not uh, under those laws, but there's a moral law too as well. And as you saw, 855 references, we can't unhitch ourselves. We're inextricably hitched to the Jewish gospel, the Jewish people were part of the plan, as we'll see now. Two fast and not so easy to understand illustrations of Paul's point is, look, what God started with, he's going to finish. It's easy for the Jew to come to Christ. It will be. And, and he goes first with the grain offering. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is a special kind of one of the sacrifices of many Kinds. He says, if that first fruit offering is holy, set apart from, for God, for his purposes, so too the rest of the offering. Let me explain to you what that is. Okay. Uh, verse 16. Here, here, here it is. I've got this lame uh, thing that I made for you. Okay. All right. I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I tried. Okay. So he says that first lump of dough you could present at the temple, either a baked offering or raw. They were to bring to God an offering of thanksgiving, but also 
to be a part of the meal that follows because now that you've brought an offering, you're at peace with God and you enjoy a meal together, a communal meal. So here's what he's saying. When they tithed on their grain, the first thing that they brought in, they said, this is offered to God and to the priests at the temple and this kind of thing. They took a small part of the tent and made a little barley loaf and they brought it in either dough or baked, and they put it before the Lord, right? So Paul's saying this. The first fruits back in the day was dedicated and was saying this for the rest to come. And he's saying that on the day of Pentecost, all the Jews that got saved and became Christians, they're the first fruits. And then there were 2,000 added to that. And don't forget about the 120 in the upper room. And don't forget about the 12 apostles. Those are, that's the first offering. So what he's saying is, hello, is it going to be so hard? What God was doing with them, God finishes when he comes back around and finish, gets the same batch. They're made of the same stuff. That's his point here. And then he goes to, if that didn't thrill you, then he goes to the olive tree. So he goes to an olive tree. And he says, the olive tree is kind of a symbol of Israel all through the Old Testament. So he says, if the roots are holy, blessed, designed by God, purposed by God, set apart for God, if the roots of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God called them and God promised them a nation, then he said, if he did that at the root level, the root blessing has a continued extension and a blessing and consequences to the branches which are their descendants, Israel. So Israel's, the nation is the branches. Here's what he's saying. If the patriarchs are holy and set apart, the effects that reach the branches as well, it has consequences. And so it's the same tree from the same root. Jesus is not going to have a hard time (laughs) connecting branches to their own tree. That's really going to be the overview and a theme that he's going to come back to in a second. Now he turns, and now back, Spencer, to uh, 17 and 18. Now he's going to say, here's the situation with that tree. The way that the church gets in is that those branches get cut off and the wild olive branch is the church, the Christians. They get plugged in like a graft tree there. So he says, do not boast over the branches. What does he mean by that? You're being nourished. That's the tree that gives you life. So anybody who's a Christian who has any ounce of anti-Semitism in them at all, and there's ton, can read these words and say, are you kidding me? The Bible says, are you really going to cop an attitude of superiority, of arrogance over the tree, Israel, the branches that support you, that you get grafted in, but who nourishes you is what God started and is doing through the Jewish people. In other words, don't count them out. Don't look down on them. Don't give up on them. Don't feel superior to them. Remember who supports who. When we were over there, the Jewish people, they get it, some of them. 
they know God is with them and made some promises to them. So somebody pointed out, I can't remember which one of you said, look at that T-shirt. And I looked over there and it says, I've got it here for you. America, don't worry, Israel's behind you. All right, so, <laughs> so let, let, let me say this. It would really work if it said, Gentile Christian church, all 2.8 billion of you. No worries. Israel's behind you. Because you're behind Israel. Quite literally. That is how he is working in this world. Though it looked terrible right now, he says, oh, appearances can be deceiving. So we can go back to our scriptures. Now, he says, right thinking will produce the right attitude. Let us continue. Okay, so you're going to say, and in the Greek, the so that I could be grafted in is italicized, if you will. It's called the emphatic uh, tense. And it's a way to call attention to that. So all the commentators say, watch this bad attitude. This is a bad guy speaking. Or a guy who's just mixed up. Okay, so you're going to say, branches, the nation, were broken off so that I could be grafted in. No, let me say it the right way. Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Okay, it's more of a look at me. I'm better than you guys. Okay, granted. Okay, I see your point. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith, by grace. Don't be arrogant, but be, stand in awe. Verse 21. For God didn't spare the natural branches. He will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness. Well, the word is severity, the, the harsh part of God. Severity to those who fell, but kindness to you Gentiles, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. To be cut off in that sense is to be found out not to be a true engrafted branch because once you've met the Messiah, you're eternally secure. But if you don't continue in God's goodness, you prove yourself to be a false graft. All right? So I just want to say that before I forget verse 22. Consider this kindness and sternness, two sides of God. Otherwise, you will be cut off too. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God's able to graft them in again. He's ready and prepared, and he's going to tell you next paragraph, and he's going to do it. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated Jewish olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Right thinking that Israel has preeminence in the plan will bring a right attitude. And that right attitude consists of respect and reverence for how God's working in the world and faith in Israel's restoration. Why? Because he's saying, he's pleading with them. He's saying, come on, you guys. It's easy to think about this. Natural branches back to the, to the tree from which they were severed. It's easy peasy, really, he's saying. So it's a, this chapter has been called the death 
of replacement theology. There's a theology out there that kind of started back in Rome of saying, okay, the Jews, Jewish leaders, the Jewish people in their hostility toward the gospel are the bad guys in the story. God's done with them and he's replacing them and all their blessings now go to the church. And this whole chapter, you cannot read this chapter and, and not hear the argument against that very way of thinking. So Paul uses an imaginary opponent saying, you'll say, hey, the branches blew it and, you know, so that I could be added in. Bye-bye, Israel. Hello, church. That's the attitude there. Now, Paul says, I'm going to grant you that argument. Yes, indeed, branches were broken off uh, because of a lack of faith. Uh, they were cut off from the blessing, right? Uh, and for, for which made room for, ye, for the Gentile church. Let me show you a picture of grafted olive branches. Now, this whole subject of branch, uh, branch grafting fruit trees, it's, it's very interesting. But see, if you want to grow an olive that you prefer and the original tree has got some proneness to root decay or disease, you can actually take the olives you really want and put it on the better tree, that at least the better root system tree, right? And then you'll get your olives, even though it's not the actual natural olive tree. It's a, it's a different kind of olive. And so he's going to use this explanation to say, see the missing branches? That's where the Jews went, no, thank you. But every, every Jew that said yes, and there were, there's millions of them by now, the remnant, they're, they're still there. They exist. But the ones that said, no, thank you, they got cut off. And, get, and, and what did that make room for? Let's plug in the Gentile believers who through faith and repentance get plugged into the Jewish plan of salvation for the world. You can keep that up there just for a minute. So here's what he says. Now, you shouldn't this tragedy, take a look at the, the zip of the saw. Shouldn't this tragedy, the loss of many branches, be sobering to you? Uh, should you not feel in awe, really? Not arrogance, not hu uh, you should have humility, not haughtiness. You should be grateful and, and feel indebted, not this, well, they're out and we're in, right? No, no, no. So before you make the same mistake they did, boasting about their uh, privileged position at the expense of the grace of God, before you do that, he says, consider two things. Okay, we can go back to the verses, especially verse 22 you're looking at and following me. Paul says, I want you to see the two sides of God before you just arrogantly say things that you shouldn't be saying, especially about Israel. He says, I want you to consider two sides of the same God. Now, today and post-everything, a post-modern world, we only want a God of one nature. We don't want the consideration of the two natures of God. We just want the kindness part. And that word in the Greek is a blended word of goodness and graciousness and mercy and kindness. That's the part that the new gospel is. 
oh, we've, we've severed the natures of God, the nature and all the other attributes that make us uncomfortable, his justice, his holiness. You can't do that. And so he says, I want you to consider, first of all, the kindness and goodness of God, the kindness toward you Gentiles. I want you to take this into to your heart. So it's really uh, Ephesians chapter 2 shows us really well what he's talking about. He says, remember, Gentiles, to the Ephesian Gentiles, that at one time you guys were completely separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship where? In Ireland? No, in Israel. And foreigners to the covenants of the Jewish promises without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were way far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And he goes on to say beautiful things. He says, listen, you were dead in your sins. You're bowing down to the things that your hands had created. You're worshiping Zeus and Aphrodite. Idol worshipers are Gentile forefathers with no biblical understanding, far, far, and far away. But God, through through his mercy, though you were dead in your sins and seeking just to gratify your own sinful nature, though you were dead in your sins, Christ made you alive and raised you up and seated you in heavenly places with Christ. He says, so consider that and be in awe and grateful and consider the sternness and the harshness of God. We can go back. Consider toward the Jews who got cut off. You want to talk about the sternness of God? Jesus wept on his way to Jerusalem and said, oh man, weeping, the son of God. If you guys just would have realized your day of God visiting you. Oh, and telling the disciples with tears, not one stone is going to stay on top of each other. And within 30, 40 years of his death and resurrection, under the sovereignty of God, Rome came in and obliterated them and a million people in Jerusalem died. He says, would you guys just sober up and look at what, how terrible it is for Jew or Gentile to be in unbelief. There is a side of God that if you reject his kindness and goodness and sacrifice on your behalf, what is he left with? He's left with justice. And so he says, severity to the Jews. Consider that. Now, is Adolf Hitler any different than King Nebuchadnezzar or the Assyrians who came in to Jerusalem in 700 BC, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and they put fish hooks into the Jewish noses and led them out to Assyria, and then 200 years later, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came and took the rest away. Is Adolf Hitler any different than than under the sovereignty of God, putting his own people who continually, age after age after age, reject and reject and reject, and squeezing it and squeezing it and squeezing it, It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So he says, I want you to consider both sides of God, how good he's been to you 
and how hard he's been on them. And we've got 2,000 years of history to look back on. He says now in your verses there, and he says, and this is why he wants you to reflect. He says, the kindness and the severity, they can go either way. They can be reversed like that. He can have severity toward any Gentile, and it can be kind if they put away their unbelief, your verses. He can be kind to them and restore them. How much easier will it be to restore those people uh, when you're, they're connected to uh, their own tree? Now, speaking of graphs, I've got a personal story. Most of you know it. I had a bone marrow transplant nearly 20 years ago. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was a resistant form of it. So I failed chemotherapy and I failed radiation. So they said, time for the big gun. It's called a bone marrow transplant. It's when a stem cell, they nuke you completely of your blood and your marrow is where you make your blood. Those are called stem cells, right? Now, if your cancer is not, your blood cancer not in your marrow, then you can donate your own marrow. They harvest your stem cells from you, not particularly pleasant experience. And then they freeze them, nuke you completely, and then give you back your own stem cells. And it is called medically to graft back in to your own body. Now, thank God, my cancer was not in my marrow. So they hooked me up to a machine. They harvested my own stem cells, treated them just in case, nuked me, and then gave me back my own stem cells that went in and were welcomed home <laughs> by the rest of the body. The rest of the body said, hey, where have you been? We've been missing you, you know? Hey, and what's new with you guys, you know? And so, yes, I had to have my baby shots again. I had to go in for whatever babies have, measles, mumps, and rubella, whatever. They thought I was joking. I need my baby shots. Why? Because I, this blood has never seen anything of that. Now, if, um, if it's in your marrow, then you need an outside donor, a sibling, and they've got six levels. You've got to match all six. You've got to be a six out of six. Even then, there's a chance you might get host graft disease, and you can get transplanted successfully and die of the disease. Because the, if it's graft host disease, then the graft coming in says, oh, T cells are the fighter cells. We don't recognize this place. We don't know. Who are you? We're going to destroy you. So the T fighter cells have never been to that tree, and they just go crazy, killing the tree. And the tree dies because they're contrary to each other. So Paul says, look, you guys were a six out of six match. You got in, but it's contrary. There had to be some you know, work involved. And by the grace of God, even though you weren't, you're not a complete fit, God makes it work. Now he says, how much more? if the own, their own stem cells come back to their own body, how much easier and more readily will that happen? And that's exactly God's point. Do not give up on them. 
Oh, it may look one way to you, you guys, but he says, I made a promise to those people. No, just because you have DNA as a Jew isn't going to save anybody. Every, if you die without confessing Christ and faith in Jesus Christ, you, you're gone. DNA, shmiene, whatever that means. <laughs> you need faith in Christ. And that's when he says, now the big shebang, we're done. Let's finish up. Here's the finale. Now, I don't want you to be ignorant. Oh, this is important of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited, Gentile Christians about Jews. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of non-Jews are saved. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. And he quotes one of the many promises about, it says, the deliverer Christ will come from Zion, from Jerusalem. He, that's his first place that he deals with. He will turn godlessness away from Israel, another word for another name for Israel's Jacob. And he goes on, Isaiah, saying, and this is my covenant with them, God speaking, when I take away their sins. So he says, okay, as far as the gospel's concerned, they're enemies on your account. They look like the bad guys. Yeah, I get that. But as far as election is concerned, God's plan, they are loved. They're beloved, the word in the Greek, on account of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King David, and Solomon, and Noah, everybody back there, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Now, how can you read that as a Gentile Christian and say, oh, God's done with Israel? That's why they don't go to Romans 11, because Romans 11 refutes that idea. So let's finish up with the right right outlook, right thinking, right attitude, right outlook, then we're done. The right outlook is a positive one. <laughs> They're coming. They're coming. It's a matter of time. Now it says, when it says all Israel will be saved, does that mean every last person with the Jewish DNA? No, of course not. It means massive revival will sweep through. Uh, I mean, they're in the tribulation, the context of Isaiah saying that they will come is in the tribulation, the great day of the Lord. So under pressures, what does Revelation tell you? The Antichrist, who is possessed at one time by Satan himself, running the world, with the Christian church removed, because he says, when the fullness of Gentiles comes in. Now, imagine being that last Gentile (laughs) to believe in Jesus. because that's the last seat on Rapture Airlines. (laughs) And it is holding the whole thing up. So if you are here and a Gentile and want to get saved today, it would be a good thing. Wouldn't that be nice to get saved? Boom. What a great sermon illustration that would be. (laughs) And then you'd have to put up with me for at least 10,000 years going, I told you. All right, so he will turn the God's gifts in now. Okay, so when there, when Revelation says they will be surrounded, oh, the Antichrist, he makes a peace treaty with them. And then in the middle of it, he says, guess what? I'm God, worship me or die. And then he goes after them. 
and he summons the kings of the earth, the generals, all the people we know about here in the news. They're all going to come to swallow up Israel. And in those precious moments at great loss of life, that nation is going to feel it. And it says in the Bible that there are 144,000 that God sets aside from Israel during the Great Tribulation. He saves 144,000 men who don't defile themselves, who are spirit-filled Christians, whose job is to evangelize the nation for seven years. So while that, all that pressure and all the hell is breaking loose all over the world, the pressure's on them. The church is gone. The 144,000 with the help of an angel crossing the, crisscrossing the sky, preaching the gospel for the last seconds of human history, they cry out, finally, Yeshua. They get it. Their eyes open. Not every last one of them, the nation as a whole comes in. And as they're crying out, Yeshua, guess the context of the second coming. It's not like, ta-da, it's a ta-da, I'm here to save them. So he comes back with the church to save Israel, who's surrounded, started there in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. And so when he appears, it's in the context of saving and bringing his converted nation uh, to safety. This is the gospel this is the end of Romans. This is, and he continues on to say, uh, this is the hard part here. Just as you were one at one time disobedient to God and now have received mercy as a result of their rejection, their disobedience, so they too may now become disobedient in order that they may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Paul's a genius, so we just have to... Just let that uh, some of that go. Verse 32, I'll explain it. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, is this not a plan that is like so far out of this world? He's saying, God allowed, bound all men over to disobedience. God allowed the fall to continue. He allowed Jew and Gentile to both be locked up in the prison of not being able to fix the problem. He allowed life to continue from the fall so that he could have mercy on first Israel and then through their disobedience, open up mercy door to the world. And then through giving mercy to the world, it comes back to Israel. Israel. This is what he's talking about, how God took the disobedience of, their, of his nation, God took the disobedience of the Gentile world, and he worked it together so that he could have mercy on whosoever will. Jew, Shmu, or you. <laughs> Come on. That was creative. Come on. It just doesn't matter if it's a nation or it's uh, the Gentile world. Paul's doing this right now. Well, how did God do this? And he, now we're, we're going to close. Listen, he's like, okay, he starts with one guy. And he says, you guys can't have kids, but I'm going to enable you to have kids. So he makes a nation. And he said, by the way, I'm going to step through one of your wombs. I, God, I'm going to be a man 
but I'm going to be born a Jew like you, and I'm going to redeem as the God-man. I'm going to lay down on a cross. You guys are going to be responsible for actually putting me on the cross, and then as you reject me, I'm going to open it up to the whole world, save the whole world, and when the glass is full and can't have any more in a fullness of Gentiles, right? When that's done, then I'm going to take them out of the way, and then I'm going to bring my people, Israel, back into the fold. And Paul goes, There's a, wow, <laughs> who, who would have ever thought of something like that? And only God. So why don't we stand together and say the only right response to all of this is how he closes out with a doxology of praise. Right here, the worship team. Yeah, you guys can make your way up. Come on. You know you want to. All right, are you ready, folks? We are going to repeat this together. This is the culmination of the argument, wow, isn't God amazing? And it begins, let's read together. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.